Well, good morning. Am I on? Yeah, there I am. Good morning. Welcome to Journey Church. My name is Nathan McCallum. It's good to see you all here today. <clears throat> I want to say to begin with, just happy Mother's Day. <clears throat> if you haven't been told that yet, hopefully by now, hopefully by now, I had to call my mom on the way here this morning <clears throat> to tell her, and as typical for her, when it started with me telling her Happy Mother's Day, ended with her encouraging me. Uh, and so what a blessing uh, to have a mom like that. And so I realized today, just real quick, would like to say, uh, to exhort you this morning, uh, mothers, uh, and as well as children, because uh, we all want to honor our mothers today. I realized like Mother's Day can be a beautiful day. Uh, like I said already, I called my mom and, and she was already encouraging me this morning. Uh, some of you are here with your mom. Uh, some of you may be watching this later this week uh, online because you are like my wife with her mom this morning worshiping where she does. And so I know Mother's Day can be, can be a beautiful, beautiful day, but I also know it can be difficult. I know it can be difficult uh, for some people. Um, I, I realize um, like just the reality is like some of you here uh, have lost children. You, you've lost children. Um, Maybe like my wife and I, you lost a child through miscarriage, um, maybe through a stillbirth, or maybe just a premature death, but I know that that can make Mother's Day hard. Uh, and so I don't know, also know like some of you would just love to, to be a mom and you're having a hard time uh, conceiving. And so like I realized that that makes today bittersweet as well. I know as well, like some of you are step-parents, and being a step-parent is uh, a thankless job a lot of the time. And so I know like that makes Mother's Day hard. <clears throat> and some of you have lost your, your mom, and you'd love to tell your mom, Happy Mother's Day. Maybe even for some of you, this is the first year uh, without her there. And so I definitely just want to acknowledge the fact that Mother's Day can be both just difficult because of your relationship or because of previous um, death in life. And yet wherever you are today, whether today is beautiful or whether it's broken or whether it's a mixture of the two, I just want you to know that God sees you, that he sees you and that he loves you. Whether you're the mom that's struggling with your kids, maybe a wayward child or whether you're a child who is in a situation where you can't tell your mother happy Mother's Day. God sees you and God loves you. And God loves mothers. And God delights in mothers. And he delights to see you delight in your kids. Uh, I just think it's important for us to understand that mothering is a challenge. And I say that as a guy. <laughs> but I'm married. Uh, and, and I know that mothering is a challenge. There's a phrase that we were told when our five-year-old was born or that I'd heard, which is that the, the days are long and the years are short. And uh, I've, got, I've got three kids from 20, like he's about to gra graduate college this coming Saturday. I've got one about to start their senior year next year, and I've got one who's graduating kindergarten in two weeks. So I do know the days are long, but man, the years are short. And so whether today is happy or challenging or a little mixture of both, I just want to encourage you today, mothers, from, from Isaiah chapter 40, 
Starting in verse 28, this is what God says through his prophet Isaiah. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. I know there are days where mothers feel (laughs) faint. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And so I just want want to encourage you today on this day that, that you would press into Jesus, that you would lean on him on those days and those moments where you feel like you're going to collapse, that he would renew your strength. Let me pray, and then we'll get into our Philippians text. Father, we come before you. We think, we're so thankful for mothers. We're thankful for the way that you've designed the family and how you have given us mothers to nurture us, to love us, to point us to Jesus. And we just pray today that you would strengthen the moms in the room, that you would strengthen us who maybe don't have a mom in the room. Just encourage our hearts, Lord, and help us. I know like being a mother can be um, difficult. And I also know that people will shame you for different decisions that you make. I just pray that you'd help us to be gracious with one another and experience the grace that you offer us. Would you give us joy and would you give us wisdom and how we can best honor our moms today. Thank you for moms, God. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. I know some of you are wishing that was the sermon. Sorry. That was, that was the intro to the intro. Uh, so here we are in Philippians. We're in the middle of a series that we've titled Gospel Joy and Gospel Power. And we're walking through the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Now, I don't have a ton of time to go back through what we've already <clears throat> talked about or the context of the letter of Philippians. You can read it later or you can go back and watch the last two weeks of messages. But I want to touch briefly on the fact that what we talked about last week, because when you walk through a book of the Bible, you're kind of confronted with all kinds of things that you wouldn't typically maybe even want to talk about. And so as I'm working through Philippians, what I'm noticing just because of the way I'm breaking down the chunks that we're doing, <clears throat> this has kind of created a a mini-series within the series on Philippians on, the, on suffering and persecution in the life of a Christian. That's not exactly, if you're doing a topical sermon series, you're like, let's talk about suffering. But that's kind of where we're at because that's where Philippians is at. And so last week, we talked about two chains that the enemy tries to chain the gospel with, to, to bind up the gospel from advancing the chain of persecution and the chain of hypocrisy. And what we basically said last week from verses 12 to 18 is that no chain has been able to refrain the advancement of the gospel in the history of our world. We are here in Jonesboro. We said last week it's almost 6,600 miles from Jerusalem. It's 2,000 years after Jesus. And yet here we are talking about Jesus and his gospel. The gospel is what we said was unchained and has advanced across time, it has advanced across cultures, it has advanced in spite of persecution, it has advanced even in the midst of church drama to continue the kingdom of God for 2,000 years. 
And so today we're picking up on the second half of that, and we're looking at verses 18 through 26, as Brittany already read this morning, and we turn our attention to a famous passage, a famous verse, and we're going to see how the unchained gospel affects how we live how the unchained gospel affects how we live, and we're also going to see how the unchained gospel affects how we die. Yay. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. Have you ever truly considered what you live for? Have you ever truly considered what you live for? Paul is telling us in this text that what we live for matters. In fact, Tim Keller, he says it like this regarding this text. Tim Keller says, Paul is teaching that it's not the circumstances of your life, but it's the way you define life that will determine whether you stand or whether you fall in this world. It's not what happens to you that actually determines whether you stand and fall in this world, but it's actually the way you define your life. And to be honest, that seems pretty wise, but completely unrealistic. (laughs) That circumstances wouldn't define my life, that circumstances wouldn't, wouldn't actually determine whether or not I stand or fall, but how I define my life would, would determine that. And yet, I kind of concur with Tim Keller because I think he's concurring with the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Paul in our text today. How do you define your life? How do you ascribe meaning to your existence? And does how you define your life, does it actually matter more than the circumstances of your life in regards to whether you stand or whether you fall in this world? Well, the place where Paul defines his life is at the center of our text today, verse 21, where he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, living is is. He is defining his life. And this is one of the more famous statements by Paul. But I believe a lot of us are so familiar with, with the actual statement that the magnitude of what he says kind of glosses over us. At least I know for a lot of my life it has for me. And being in this text for a week will keep it from glossing over. It'll The magnitude of it just kind of weighs down on you. And so when you consider what Paul's statement is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, I think two things in particular jump out, at least they did to me. The first thing that jumped out to me was the weightiness, just the utter weightiness of how you define your life. It's a weighty thing. And the second thing that jumps out to me is the invincibility, it's a big word, but the invincibility of a life defined by the gospel. So we see the weightiness of how you define your life and we see the invincibility of a life that's defined by the gospel. So let's dive in and look at that quickly. The weightiness of how you define your life. And the first thing you see is like, it's weighty because it's personal. 
I mean, the first thing he says is for to me, for to me. Like only, act, only you can actually determine what you live for. People can tell you what you should live for. People can give you kind of exhortations. That's kind of what I'm doing today. Just spoiler alert, I'm gonna tell you to live for Christ. If you wanna close your notebook, you can do that now. People can tell you what to live for, but ultimately you have to be the one to say, this is what I live for. You see, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Roman citizen. He'll say that he is the Pharisee of Pharisees. Chapter three, he gets into kind of his, just his uh, pedigree. He could define himself by a lot of different things. Ultimately, Paul had to come to terms with how he would define his life. And he said, for to me, defining your life is weighty because it's personal. And what we see in this passage is the gravity of the way a person defines their life. There's a gravity to it. It's not just theoretical. It's not something you just kind of aspire to and write in your Bible or write in your notebook. Oh, this would be great. There's gravity to how you define your life. It's weighty and it impacts all of your life. It impacts all of your life. It impacts your decisions. How you define your life impacts your priorities. It impacts what you're willing to sacrifice. It impacts where you spend your money. We can go on and on, but the way you defend your life, or the way you define your life is weighty because it's personal for you. How you define your life becomes the filter through which you live your life. Have you ever seen a person or talked to a person that makes a, a decision that, that doesn't make sense to you? I mean, I made a lot of those in college that didn't make a lot of sense to my parents, I know, or myself now. But I know, I think about, in, in particular to this, I think about talking with missionaries over the years who've uprooted their lives and, and gone to other places for the sake of the gospel. And I'll say things to them like, man, that's such a big sacrifice. And what's interesting is a lot of times it seems as though I think it's a bigger sacrifice than they do. I mean, sure, there's sacrifices of seeing family and, and things of that nature, but a lot of times for them, because of the way they've oriented their life, they're like, I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of a sacrifice. And to me, I'm like, man, it's a big one. The way you define your life, though, is that you actually, it makes what you sacrifice, it makes how that impacts your life, it changes everything based upon how you define your life because it's personal to you. But it's not just weighty because it's personal. The weightiness of how you define your life is weighty because the issue itself is just a weighty thing. I mean, we're talking about your life. You get one life. And we're talking about how you would say, this is what my life is about. The meaning of life is weighty. The meaning of your life is weighty. What does it mean for something to be weighty? Well, uh, back to the Oxford definition of it. The Oxford definition, at least in regards to this way of using weighty as an adjective, here's what it says, of great seriousness or importance. So being weighty could mean I'm saying that how you define your life is of great seriousness or importance, or having a great deal of influence on events and decisions. So the way you define your life being weighty means that the way you define your life has a great deal of influence on events and decisions in your life. Can much of anything be more weighty than how you define your life? 
Humans were made for a purpose. We were. And how we define what we live for is paramount and has an impact on everything we do. And here's what's interesting. Human beings, regardless of what region of the world you live in or what worldview you have, you can't help but think about what your life is for. You just can't help think about it. According to Rodney Stark, uh, who is quoted in a book by Tim Keller called The Make, Making Sense of God, here is what Tim Keller says about a finding that Rodney Stark has. He says this, when asked whether they think about the meaning and purpose of life, nearly three-fourths of people across the globe say they do, they do think about the meaning and purpose of their life either often or at least sometimes. And he said, goes on to say that regional, like where you are in the world, variations are very small. That in that text, 89% of people in sub-Saharan Africa would say that they at least sometimes or even often think about the meaning of their life. And 76% of people in Asia would say the same thing. Different worldviews, different cultures, but yet three out of every four people on average across our world say, yeah, at least sometimes and sometimes even often, I think about what's the purpose of life. Our purpose or meaning in life is weighty. It's of great seriousness and importance. Psychologists call this the need for significance. We function best as humans when we feel like our life has a point. I know most of you in here, this is not news to you because you feel this. You feel this. You think about your life. You wonder, what am I living for? What, what's the purpose of my life? We just can't help but think about it. So how does a person find meaning? If it's so weighty, how does a person find meaning? And we could talk about this for a long time. There's been books written on this, but what I'd like to do is kind of is kind of do a broad scope that there's, there's really three things that I would say that we typically find our life and define our life by. And the first of those is that sometimes we just, we, we find it in others. Maybe we would say to live, to live, instead of saying to live, for to me, to live is for someone else. So you think about relationships. Maybe you would say like for to me, to live is my spouse. For to me, to live are, is my children. For to me, to live is this friendship. We look at relationships a lot of times and we put them as the source and definition of our life. Maybe for others, you would say it's some great cause. Maybe it's a, maybe especially like if your vocation is to, is in the health industry and you're serving those who are sick and need help, you would, you would say like for to me to live is to, to serve others. It's, maybe it's a philanthropic cause. Maybe you're really driven for an environmental cause. Maybe it's a religious cause, but for a lot of people, there's certain causes that they give their lives to. Another way that people, especially in the West, in America, in particular, that define themselves, they define themselves by themselves. For to me, to live is for me. And it's about a lot of different things. Could be pursuing your dreams and your hopes. 
Maybe it's accumulation of material possessions, that beach house, that new car, that lake house, that new boat. Maybe it's monetary wealth, for to me to live is to make as much money as I can. Maybe it's accomplishments. I mean, that's, I, I like accomplishments. For, for to me is to be recognized for all the things I've done in my job or, or what like that. For to me, it's the quality of living. For to me, it's athletic accomplishments. For to me, it's, I'm an entrepreneur and, I, and it's all the businesses that I create. The reality of it is, is that we typically define our lives in one of three ways for others, for a cause, or for ourself. And you'll notice that as I walk through those, many of these purposes that we find in life, they're, they're good things. They're good things. They're not bad things. Like loving your spouse and, and making them ultimate in your life, that sounds like a great thing. Loving your kids and, and making them ultimate in your life, that sounds like a great thing. I mean, kids are a blessing from God. God says, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. These are good things, but I want you to understand something. They're created things. They're created things. What do I mean by that? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, explains that the factory setting of our hearts in a fallen world is to worship created things instead of creator. And when that happens, what Romans shows is there's a deterioration of life. Even when you put something that's beautiful and good and a gift of God, when they become what you worship, it deteriorates your life. Now, some of you may be like, well, I don't worship my spouse. I don't worship my kids. And yet what I would say is when you define your life first and foremost by those things, they now sit on the throne. That's what you make sacrifices for, ultimately. That's what you love. And that is where you place the weight of your life on them. The human heart has an idol problem, and this bleeds over into our look for meaning. And because as humans, we're naturally inclined to consider the meaning of our lives, as we've already talked about, then we typically want to fill in that blank with something. For to me, to live is what? For Paul, to live is Christ. What we see with Paul is not just the weightiness of how he defines his life, but we see the weightiness of the gospel. He says to live is Christ. Christ is a title. It's not Jesus' last name, just so you know. He doesn't sign checks, Jesus Christ. Well, he might, but it's not his last name. It's a title, which basically means anointed one of God, Messiah, King. So for Paul, he's basically saying, for me to live is King Jesus. That's the meaning of his life. So what would it mean for us to live? What does it mean for Paul to live for Christ? Well, it means, first of all, that the weightiness of the gospel has reshaped his life and his purpose. What do I mean by the weightiness of the gospel? Because didn't I preach just a few weeks ago that, that Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? The weightiness of the gospel doesn't mean the heaviness of the gospel. So what do I mean by the weightiness of the gospel? Well, 
The analogy that came to my mind was, if you think about, it's the time of year as we go to the lake, we go to the rivers, we float, go to the ocean. Um, you think about skipping a rock. Now, I'm not the best at skipping rocks. If I can get three or four, I'm really, really fired up. But you know, you, fi you find the little smooth rock and you skip it across the water and it kisses the water and just kind of skips along. And you think about that, that a lot of times, like that, you have to do that with a smaller rock. But you get a three or five pound rock, even if it's smooth, you try to skip that mug, it's not gonna go well. It's gonna come into the water, it's gonna just splash and displace everything. And what I would like to say is that I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is a lot like that. For a lot of us, it's just skipping across our life with no real impact. But for Paul, when you define yourself by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's more like that large rock that just gets lumped into your life. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's a large rock that gets thrown into the midst of your life, it displaces what was previously there and it rearranges everything in ways that nothing else can. Jesus has a ripple effect across your life when you live for him. Why? Well, because what the gospel does is it exposes you. When you really engage with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life and that God sent him not to condemn the world but to save the world. When you engage with the gospel, it exposes you. Romans 3.23 says it exposes your sin. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, not some of us, not only the bad ones, all of us have turned away from God and have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a sin problem. And the gospel exposes that. But the gospel also exposes our need for grace and the availability of grace. Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is not to make you a better person. The gospel is to make you dead or to take you from being dead to alive. And that's a big difference. And it is a free gift. What our sin has earned for us is death. And yet, by the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, what God provides for us if we follow him is life. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives you what you need most a right relationship with God, your Father and Creator, and it does it through grace. The gospel reshapes your life because it does it by grace, not something you can earn. And that exposure initially, the exposure of sin and the exposure of your need for grace, that you can't get yourself out of trouble with God, it's disorienting at first to the human heart and can be painful and yet it's so glorious. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes into your life with a weightiness that displaces all other priorities, all other beliefs, all other worldviews, and all other motivations in your life. He displaces how you previously defined your life. He reorders your loves.
he transforms your mind. St. Augustine said it like this. The quote's not going to be on the screen, but um, I just love this. When I say he reorders your loves, this is what I mean. St. Augustine says, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. So here's what he says, to love things. So this is what a holy life does. To love things, that is to say, in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. Here's what he's saying, basically, that to live a just and holy life, the way that God does that is he reorders your love because there are some things that are good that we love too much. And there are other things we should love that we don't love. And there's things that we do love that we shouldn't love. And what God does is he doesn't come in and say, you shouldn't love these things that are good. He just says, you got to reorder them because I need to be primary. When you place your hope in Jesus, he reorders your loves. And the weight of his gospel changes the way you live. By worshiping your creator now as ultimate in your life, instead of a created thing, he will get your loves in the proper order. And this, believe it or not, is good news because what it does is it actually frees you to actually love and to serve those created things and the people that you love without making them the point of your life because being the point of your life is a weight that they cannot bear. It's a weight they cannot bear. Your kids cannot bear the weight of being the point of your life. Your spouse cannot bear that. Your job cannot bear that. Your friends cannot bear that. Your girlfriend or your boyfriend cannot bear that weight. Apart from the reordering of loves in your life, whoever or whatever is currently the meaning of your life will have the weight that's unsustainable. And the weight of that worship will crush both you and them. If the purpose of your life carries this unparalleled weight, then I think it's helpful to see it's probably one of two ways. Either the purpose of your life is a weight above you, ready to crush you, or if if the purpose of your life is in Jesus, then that weight is underneath you and serves as an anchor for your soul. Where is that weight? What kind of weight is your purpose right now in your life? Is it a crushing weight? Is it a crushing weight or is it Jesus anchoring your soul? And I just want to say, I don't know that you'll fully even understand that today. I don't know that I do either. These are big, I said it's weighty. These are big questions. It's a big thing Paul's talking about here. So I just think there's a couple questions that we can think about that might help us delineate within our hearts what's actually true. Because first thing I just say is like, what typically makes you the most disappointed What in your life typically makes you the most disappointed? That, that's a good way to kind of determine what the meaning of your life might actually be. Like, are you just repeatedly disappointed in your spouse? Don't look at him if that's true. Are you just 
completely over and over disappointed. Maybe you've put your spouse in too high of a level. They can't, they can't hold up to that, that hope that you've put in them. Are you completely disappointed in yourself? Because you, you are primary and every time you fail, you just, you see, man, for me, for to me to live as myself and I just keep disappointing myself. What makes you angry the quickest? Because a lot of times that might be what you worship actually. When something goes awry with that, what do you fear most? Because a lot of us, I think if we were honest, especially in America, we would say for to me to live is comfort. And a lot of times we fear what's gonna snatch that comfort away. For to me, what brings you the most joy? These are questions that you can think through to think where, what might actually be ultimate in my life? Where do I find myself disappointed the most, angry the most, fearful the most, or joyful the most? And that might be what's actually at the seat of the throne of your heart. But at the same time as you're thinking through that, don't be discouraged. Because even Paul, in verse 12 of chapter three, he says this, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is not perfect. You should not expect to be perfect. Only one man was perfect, the man Jesus Christ. And so as you work through these questions in your heart and you realize, you know, I don't know that I would say that to live for me really is Christ. I think it's, it's something else. It's a created thing that might be really good, but I've put it in the place of Jesus. And that's why I'm so restless. That's why I'm so disappointed. That's why I'm so angry. That's why I'm so frustrated. That's why I'm so fearful. Don't beat yourself up. You're not gonna be perfect, but use that as a diagnostic tool to recenter your life back on Jesus. How do you complete the sentence? For to me, to live is what? You see, how you define your life will impact your life in every way. And not just your life, but those around you too. So it's vital that you do the work to understand what truly defines your life. Because whatever you say, only one thing can actually bear the weight of your life. And it's not a thing, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. And what you find is that when your life is shaped by the gospel, you see this invincibility this invincibility of a life defined by the gospel. <clears throat> a quick look at Ephesians. Now, if you're worried like, oh my gosh, it's just now, now we're, we're, not, we're gonna breeze through it. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Yes, that I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. A quick look at this passage actually shows how Paul's life was, in, was impacted by the fact that he defined his life by Jesus. First, we see Paul defining his life by Jesus changes his view of circumstantial suffering and persecution. Like notice his disposition. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's in jail. We read in Acts 28, actually, that he's there for at least two years. And, and here's what we see, his disposition. We see, I will rejoice. He's joyful. We see hope. 
It's, and, and for Paul, hope is not like, man, I sure hope the Grizzlies can pull the series out. Man, I, really, I sure hope rain doesn't come today so we can enjoy a beautiful day, this picnic we plan. Hope is an assurance of faith for Paul. His disposition and suffering, because he defines his life by Jesus, is reshaped with joy, it's with hope, and he can even say that whether, my, whether I die or whether I live, I just hope Christ is honored in my body. When your life is defined by Jesus, you see persecution and suffering as a way to make much of Jesus instead of cowering in the corner saying, why me? There's freedom in the midst of his bondage. What on earth could enable a man to leverage his own life, his one life for the person of Jesus Christ? Well, we see in verse 19, two things, and they both come from outside of him. Prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the help of the Holy Spirit. You see it in verse 19. Prayer empowered and encouraged by God through the prayers of others. It's what he he says, I know that through your prayers. And he says, I know that through the help of the Holy Spirit. So empowered and encouraged by prayer, empowered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit who you receive when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to say, why is this important? Like, why am I drawing this out? Well, here's why. Because as we already mentioned, Paul's not perfect, but I think it's easy for us to hear Paul say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain, and think, man, I could never be like him. Like, he's just so courageous. I just feel so ashamed about myself. I don't live like that. And then you bind to the lie that you never could live like that. And yet Paul, he's a man, just like us. And and he tells us that for him to say to live is Christ and to die is gain, that the power to do that, the courage to do that came from outside of him. It came through prayer. It came through the Holy Spirit. And when you begin to see that, you can begin to see it's possible for God to move in your life in the same way way. And because Paul leveraged his life for Jesus, suffering does not shake his meaning. But also because Paul leveraged his life for Jesus, his life becomes a ground for God to display his infinite glory. His life becomes a ground for God to display his infinite glory. Look at how he finishes. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for my account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What you see is the invincibility, the invincibility of a follower of Jesus. You see, when you can truly say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, you become invincible. Your life, no matter how difficult, no matter the calling, your life doesn't end you. It doesn't end you. In fact, there's a richness and a closeness because you're actually, as you go through those times of suffering, you're actually mimicking the way of Jesus. And you, 
feel even more close and intimate with him. Your life, no matter how difficult, doesn't end you. But also this, your death, no matter how difficult, doesn't end you either. When you define your life as a follower of Jesus by Christ, when you say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, death is a doorway to something better. What could an enemy, what could the enemy do to Paul? What could the opposition do to Paul? Could they, they, could, they could chain him up and he's like, sweet, I'll just share the gospel with all your guards. And the gospel keeps advancing. Oh, we'll kill him. That'd be a gain for me. Tell me when. Hmm, well, we'll set you free. That means fruitful labor for me. I'll just go back to these churches I planted. And I mean, what can you do to him? What can you do to him? The answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do to someone who's following Jesus. We are invincible to the world and the enemy's schemes. And it's not because we are awesome. Paul's not invincible because he's awesome. Paul is invincible because Jesus is awesome. And that's a big difference. Paul didn't make Paul invincible. Jesus made Paul invincible. The same Jesus who empowered Paul and the same Jesus who empowered the Philippian church to progress in their faith towards the end goal is who can empower us. And as we stumble forward with Jesus, we are going to stumble. But as we stumble forward with Jesus as our guide and as we receive power through the gospel, we become more invincible for the glory of God. This is a life worth living. A life lived by the power of God with the joy of God for the glory of God in all circumstances. Brothers and sisters, this is a life with some weight. It's a life with some weight. Irenaeus, who was a Greek bishop in the second century AD, he said it like this, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. And brothers and sisters, the only way to be fully alive is to live for Christ. Don't you want that? A life with weight? Defining your life on anything else is a fool's errand. It just is. Because every other way you define your life can be taken away like that. One phone call, one major market collapse, one health prognosis, one world war, everything can be gone like that. Only living for Jesus by grace can actually set you free in a way in which living is King Jesus and dying isn't a dead end but a doorway to something far better. And when you live for Jesus, we can trust him with the results of our life. Maybe if you were to say to live is Christ and to die is gain, you'll change the world. Maybe you will. Or maybe you'll disciple a couple people 
to Jesus in your home, in your workplace, and then you'll go on to be with him. But either way, this type of living is never in vain. I wanna close with this quote by Fleming Rutledge. Here's what she says. She says, here's an important distinction with far-reaching implications for Christian behavior. The deeds of Christians in this present time, the deeds of Christians in this present time, however insignificant they may seem, however vain they may appear to those who value worldly success, are already being built into advancing God's kingdom. You got to think that Paul, probably at times, people would look at Paul chained up and think, man, what a, what a waste of his life. Brother gave up all that stuff. He, he was so intelligent. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he gave it all up to, to suffer for this, this dead Messiah that they think. From the world's view of success, Paul was a failure. But as Fleming Rutledge says, the deeds of Christians in this present time, however insignificant they may seem, however vain they may appear to be, from those who value worldly success, those deeds are being built into God's advancing kingdom. A life not wasted, a life worth living, because it's a life built for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. So as we close, my call to action to you today is this. I really think when it comes down to it, something as heavy and big as this idea of what defines your life. I mean, how can you even preach about that in 45 minutes and really do it justice, a topic this big? But I do think you can kind of boil it down to two options, really according to Paul. And here's the first. I think it's this. You, d- you define your life by anything other than Jesus. You fill in that blank. But if you do that, I truly believe what it means, whatever, even if it's a good thing, that if that's the way you decide to live and define your life, it would just be to live is whatever that is and to die brings pain. To die is pain. It's the end. But the other option is, is to come to Jesus, to live for Christ. And in that, to die is gain. What do you want to live for? And what do you want to die for? I call you on this beautiful Mother's Day to consider your life. Come and see Jesus today. If you're in the room and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, I just would encourage you to see him again and be refreshed. I would say like just to ask him by the power of the Spirit to be defined by him. Let him define your life because our enemy will want to distract us and, and to make other things ultimate in our life. He can't snatch us out of the hands of the Father, but he can, as I said last week, he can take your joy through comparison. But if you see Jesus as a follower in this room, would you just be refreshed and ask him again? It's a daily decision, and sometimes it's a minute decision to renew you, 
by the power of his spirit and to be able to truly live for Christ. If you're a non-follower of Jesus in the room, I would just say, I would just encourage you to see him for the first time. Maybe you think you've seen Jesus, but I pray like, would you really see Jesus? Ask him, say, Jesus, show me who you are. Ask Jesus, if you would say, I'm not really a follower of Jesus, ask him to displace the priorities that are currently in your life with his good news of his gospel and let him define your life. Together, let us, whether we say we are a follower of Jesus or not, let us all together today see his beauty, see Jesus' invincibility and his glory and may it transform us from the inside out. Because brothers and sisters, you need him and he wants you. What are you waiting for? Live for Jesus because he's worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand in awe of your love for us. Because despite your love and your glory in our lives and in our world, we have fooled around worshiping created things, even good things, even worshiping some amazing created joys that you've made for life, but we've worshiped them over you, our creator. We confess, Father, that we make the purpose of our lives to live for lesser things than you. Would you show us the beauty and adventure of a life lived for you, Jesus? Would you captivate our hearts and captivate our imagination of what all our lives could be when we live them for you? In spirit, would you strengthen our hands and strengthen our minds to pursue you? We need you to do this. We need it to be done by your power and by your grace. May we live for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.